is the big ponder. Please imagine a ladder with steps numbered from zero at the bottom to ten at the top. The top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you, and the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. On which step of the ladder would you say you personally feel you stand at this time? That is the Cantrell Life Ladder, the research question surveyors use to measure happiness around the world. If you report your current happiness at seven or above, congratulations, you're officially thriving. A score between four and seven puts you in the struggling category, and under four classifies you as suffering. These scales have become a staple of modern life. Every year we get a new index ranking the happiest countries, the happiest cities, and the happiest people. The United Nations just named the happiest place on earth. It is not Disney World, it's Finland. A high life expectancy, excellent economic growth, the best healthcare in the world, and a public transport system that runs to the second. It's no wonder that Switzerland is one of the happiest countries in the world. And the happiest people on earth are officially the Norwegians. As an American living in Germany, the first thing I always look for is the placement of my old home and my new home. Almost without fail, the results are the same. Germany close to the top, America toward the middle. According to the 2021 World Happiness Report, Germany is the seventh happiest country in the world, and the US is 19th. The Happy Planet Index puts Germany 49th and America 108th. And the Social Progress Index, which includes measures of well-being and health, puts Germany 11th and America 28th. So what's the explanation for this? To find out, I figured I should ask the happiest Germans I could find. According to the most recent Glucks Atlas, an annual survey published by the Postal Service, Hamburg is the happiest city in Germany. So I got on a train, booked a hotel, and posted on social media that I was looking for locals to give me their theory on the secrets of German and Hamburgian happiness. The first non-weirdo to reply was Tim, a psychologist who specializes in depression among college students. He just moved back to Hamburg after studying in Bonn, and I asked him to meet me somewhere he associates with happiness. Tim, why have you brought me here? Um, because this is a little ocean in the middle of Hamburg. This is uh, the Außenalster, and I really like it here, and it is pretty windy, <laughs> as you can tell, maybe. We're sitting on a park bench next to the water. Tim has done fun runs here, and he often comes to watch the birds or the sailboats. Tim didn't know that Hamburg was the happiest city in Germany, but he says it doesn't surprise him. I think Hamburg is a very green city, and the penthouse apartment or the uh, really big salary or the nice car or whatever, you get used to that too. So you have to find new stuff and it's easier and much cheaper if you find it in everyday life. I asked him about the most common reason his patients struggle to find happiness. The most common thing I think is expectations. Um, expecting stuff from yourself you can't achieve. I think a lot of people either they don't achieve it or they do achieve it and they are still not happy. And I think that's something a lot of people struggle with because you can't win. The question of how to compare happiness across countries has always fascinated me. I grew up in the United States and have lived in four other countries as an adult. 
one of them, Denmark, is widely known as the world's happiest country. I was living there in 2008 when a Gallup poll found that 72% of Danes considered themselves thriving, compared to just 21% of people worldwide. Since then, an entire industry has sprung up to explain the secrets of Danish happiness. Universal health care, free university education, and generous unemployment benefits. Are these the keys to happiness? According to Bernie Sanders, the U.S. would be a much better place if it emulated cycle-crazy Denmark. We don't have any wars and that crime is low and we can let our children walk to school in the morning by themselves when they're quite young. We don't have to drive them because of drive-by shootings or something like that. In fact, happiness is kind of having a moment. In the 1960s, the small, landlocked country of Bhutan embarked on a project to measure its success by gross national happiness. Instead of focusing on development indicators like national income or foreign investment, the government obligated itself to provide its citizens with contentment and well-being. It's even in the Constitution. Since then, Bhutan has become both an economic success story and an evangelist for countries to look beyond mere economic indicators. In the 1990s, journalists from the American news show 60 Minutes came to interview the Bhutanese royal family about how they did it. Cross-national happiness is being able to um, find the right balance between uh, economic well-being and uh, emotional well-being. To boost happiness, his commission ordered contemplation, two minutes of daily meditation in each school each day. Bhutan once had a stoplight. It was right here, the only stoplight in the whole country. But they decided it was too modern, so they took it out. They also decided they didn't want those icons of America's global reach, fast food restaurants. So in Bhutan, there are no McDonald's, no Burger King, not even a Starbucks. In 2012, Bhutan launched an international effort to create a World Happiness Index that ranked countries according to how content their citizens were. Denmark was, of course, number one that year. The United States was 17th, and Germany was 26th. But what does it mean to say that one country is happier than another? I don't know. If I, if I think of the word, I mean, what would you even say? Like, what would be the German word Glück? Because that's something that kind of happens to you, isn't it? This is Adrian Dobb, a political scientist at Stanford University. He grew up in Cologne and moved to the United States when he was 16. His research focuses on the intersection between language, culture, and history, and he teaches a class called Germany in Five Words. Like most of the Germans I interviewed for this project, Adrian pointed out that asking Americans how happy they are isn't the same as asking Germans how glücklich they are. Like love or motherhood or breakfast, happiness is a word that can't be separated from the people who use it. I don't know if you know that that famous uh, ballad by Schiller, the the Ring of Polycrates, about the the Greek king. Everything everything he does just turns out awesome. He like he beats all his enemies. He's super rich and whatever. And then the Egyptian king says to him, "Well, you know, um, it's actually kind of scary how how lucky you are. Eventually, this is gonna blow up in your face. You realize that, right?" And so he's like, "Well, just to be safe, I'm gonna take something I really value and just like destroy it. I'm gonna throw." He throws a ring into the ocean and then so then they have dinner and then at dinner like his cook's like hey great news um we got this fish and it had this amazing uh ring inside of it here you have it here you should have it right and so and at that moment like the egyptian king is like i'm out of here this is terrifying right i i that that, that to me that to me says something about how 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 the word look functions um because it's not earned it's not it's not worked towards um and it just kind of finds you one way or the other. 
When I first moved to Germany, I was fascinated by the fact that glücklich, the word for happy, was directly related to glück, the word for luck. But it turns out this is almost a universal feature of the word. In English, happiness derives from hap, the old Norse word for fortune or luck. That's how we ended up with words like hapless, which means unfortunate, and idioms like happy as a clam, a truncated version of happy as a clam at high tide. Similarly, the Spanish felicidad and Italian felicita come from the Latin word felix for luck or fate. Some of the earliest known versions of the word in ancient Greek combine the concept of luck, favor, and blessedness. Unhappiness translates literally as poop spirits, or as we'd say now, shit happens. And this is what happiness meant for most of European history. It wasn't an achievement or a feeling or even something you got during your time on Earth. Some early versions of the Bible translate the famous passage, Blessed are the meek, as happy are the meek. Happiness was a reward in the afterlife, heavenly compensation for living a life of piety and discipline. The fairy tale kicker, Happily Ever After, began life in the Middle Ages as happily in the ever after. This explains why the German understanding of happiness seems so understated compared to the American version. In Germany, happiness is much more closer to being um, content than to, to having aspirations. So it's much more than happiness is the small things. It's like a nice cup of coffee. It's probably closer to the Scandinavian hygge. I yeah. don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, but like having, having pleasure in like small everyday things and not saving up all the happiness to have one really great thing. This is Saskia, another hamburger who agreed to meet and tell me the secret of her city's success. She doesn't own a car and doesn't want to, and she asked to meet me in one of Hamburg's many pedestrian and cycling paths. Saskia lived in Minnesota in high school, and to her, the American version of happiness always seemed like a response to the higher rates of instability and inequality she saw there. I always remember, I think it's a few years old, I saw a video of a woman getting trapped on a New York subway mm. with her leg between the subway stations and the train. And like while people were trying to get her out, she was shouting, don't call an ambulance, don't call an ambulance. And I was just like, I was, I was younger when I said, I was just like, well, why wouldn't you call an ambulance? And then obviously like, I went into it and that ambulances are horrifically expensive there. And I was like, well, it's, it's good that she shouted it because if there was a tourist nearby, the closest thing they would do is, is call an ambulance because we're just like used to it. Saskia is describing something I've experienced myself. One of the happiest times in my life was my first round of living in Berlin and working at a human rights charity. I didn't make very much money, but I didn't need to. My living costs were low because Berlin makes it illegal for landlords to jack up the rent. My health care was taken care of due to the public system. I didn't even have to spend money on gas or bus passes because it's so easy to bike most places in Berlin. I wasn't rich, but I was secure. And as an American, it was a strangely new feeling. According to Darren McMahon's Happiness, A History, the American conception of happiness began with John Locke. In his 1689 essay concerning human understanding, Locke proposed that God wanted his subjects to be happy, not only in the afterlife, but also here on Earth. At the time, this was a profound shift. As Locke described it, happiness meant pleasure, and seeking pleasure, or to coin a phrase, the pursuit of happiness, was God's will for all of his subjects. Over the next 200 years, this more immediate, earthly understanding of happiness caught on with the Puritans and was eventually taken up by America's founding fathers. It's like a higher order kind of thing. Like at moments of peace and relative stability and prosperity and other things that are going well, happiness is something that people might want or you might want to offer. Whereas at a time of crisis when everything is falling apart, 
it doesn't feel like the most fundamental thing people need to hear about or people are wanting. People want stability, people want safety, people want prosperity. Ian Beacock is a historian who researches the use of emotion in politics. He wrote his dissertation on Weimar Germany while splitting his time between Berlin and San Francisco. I think also in the United States, it's obviously one of the few countries where it's right at the core of the kind of political slogan that holds the country together and goes back to the founding of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Although even in the United States, it's so telling that it's not that it's not that you're being promised happiness. It's the offer that you can pursue it. It's like still off in the future. You're not actually getting it, but you have the opportunity to do it. It's still so fundamentally true of the American political myth and condition. <laughs> this individualistic notion of happiness has spawned an entire industry. America has self-help books and religious gurus and skincare products explicitly promising that they and they alone are the way to end your pursuit of happiness by finally catching it. We've also built a vast science of happiness. Happier people have lower risk for cardiovascular disease, they sleep better, they have lower stress and less joint pain, they recover from surgeries faster, and they're less likely to get colds. In 2006, researchers gave volunteers the hepatitis B vaccine and found a higher antibody response among happy people. Another study found that Catholic nuns lived longer if they recorded more positive emotions in their diaries when they were 22. Happiness might even be able to predict the future. In a 2010 study, researchers invited participants with no golfing experience to make a three-foot putt. Half of them were told that the ball they were using was lucky. Other participants in the study had made more putts when they used it. The other half were just told the ball was used by everybody else. After the researchers tallied up all the scores, they found that the participants who thought they were using the lucky ball made two-thirds of their putts, compared to just half for the non-lucky group. In another study, researchers asked participants to solve a dexterity puzzle, basically a Rubik's cube. Beforehand, they told half the participants, I'll be crossing my fingers for you. Again, the volunteers who thought they had luck on their side solved the puzzle faster. Researchers think this has something to do with self-efficacy, the belief that you have the power to change your own circumstances. Believing that you're more capable of success might make you more likely to try new activities or persevere when you fail at first. Studies have found that professional athletes are much more superstitious than the general population. And maybe they're onto something. Maybe happiness is like a kind of luck, a background belief that you're capable and deserving of getting what you want. But the more we learn about happiness, the more we discover a fundamental paradox. While individuals become happier as they get richer, countries don't. America's GDP has grown steadily since the 1960s, but happiness scores have barely budged. They might even be getting worse. In 2007, America ranked third among developed countries on the World Happiness Index. Nine years later, we came in 19th. The reason appears to be inequality. Humans compare themselves to the people closest to them. Even if you're comfortably middle class, seeing your neighbor buy a Tesla and install a swimming pool makes you feel poorer. And it's hard to achieve happiness in a society where you confront poverty as much as you do in America. It's hard to feel secure when you're constantly being reminded of how one broken rung on a ladder can send you tumbling downwards. There's also the problem that desires seem to scale with wealth. Ask a struggling college student what would make them happy and they'll say a Honda Civic in a studio apartment. Ask a 50-year-old with a three-bedroom house and a 30-year mortgage and they'll say a scuba vacation or a yacht. No matter where you are in your life, the thing that would finally make you happy is just beyond your reach.
If I was going to take someone to a place that I associate with happiness, it would be here. Riding my bike in Tempelhof Field, the giant disused airport that's now a park right in the middle of Berlin. It's a sunny day, and I'm surrounded by kids and skateboarders and barbecuers and joggers. And the first time I ever visited Berlin, I bought a graphic novel for three euros at a used bookstore around the corner. And I came here and I lied in the grass and I read the whole thing. I don't know if that's German happiness or American happiness or even if I thought of it as happiness at the time, but that's what it feels like now. And maybe this is the whole problem with thinking of happiness as a cultural concept. Maybe it's not an experience. Maybe it's a memory. Despite my own happiness here, Berlin is actually one of the unhappiest cities in Germany. The same survey that put Hamburg at the top of the list ranked Berlin 16th out of the 19 cities and regions they surveyed. There's various theories for this, from Berlin's distance to nature, to the standoffish culture of Berliners, to the greater number of artists, but the answer appears to be simple demographics. Berlin is one of the youngest and poorest cities in the country. There's more unmarried and unemployed people here, and that's enough to tick Berlin's happiness score slightly downwards. In fact, once you look into the specifics, the differences within Germany are surprisingly small. On a scale of 1 to 10, Hamburg has a happiness score of 6.9, and Berlin has a score of 6.7. Ranking places on their differences in happiness obscures how similar they are. The same thing, it turns out, applies to the international rankings. According to the most recent Cantrell Life Ladder data I could find, Americans rated themselves a 7.0, and Germans scored a 7.3. The top 10 countries on the World Happiness Index scored between 7.8 and 7.2. You have to go down to the 54th happiest country, Thailand, before you find any country with a score under 6.0. And yet, a lot of the media coverage of these tiny differences just seems like an excuse to restate a bunch of superficial stereotypes about foreign countries. It's only in the last 30 years that Bhutan emerged from an almost medieval isolation to gingerly taste some fruits of the 20th century. According to Danish experts, Scandinavians have a genetic predisposition towards happiness. Americans with Scandinavian heritage share those particular traits. And it's not clear that these happiness scores are even measuring happiness. When you go around the world and just ask people how happy they are, the top countries aren't Denmark and Switzerland. According to a 2014 Pew survey, they are Mexico, Israel, and Venezuela. A similar poll by Gallup in 2012 put Panama, Paraguay, and El Salvador at the top. The fact that so many of these countries speak Spanish indicates to me that happiness might not be a word that translates very well, much less a feeling. I found a study in Poland that discovered worryingly low happiness rates among children, but the researchers noted that admitting to being happy is something that's frowned upon in Polish society. Being happy and telling other people you're happy aren't the same thing. To compensate for this problem, the World Happiness Report adds statistical measures like per capita GDP, social support, life expectancy, and trust in government. That's supposed to make it more objective, but it feels to me like they're just turning happiness into another economic indicator. Maybe the Scandinavian countries keep topping these lists because the lists are designed to rank countries according to how Scandinavian they are. Remember the golfing study and the Rubik's Cube study, the ones where people who thought they were lucky performed better? Something I didn't tell you is that those studies were performed in Germany. The researchers didn't say, I'm crossing my fingers for you, they said, I'm pressing my thumbs, the German equivalent. Attempts to replicate the golfing study in the United States have almost universally failed. 
Researchers aren't quite sure why, but it could have something to do with Americans being more likely to believe that outcomes are within their control. Other studies have found that people who believe in meritocracy and the American dream are more judgmental of people in poverty. Either way, the research on happiness keeps discovering that what appear to be universal rules break down as soon as you try to pull them out of one country and apply them to another. Even the origin story of the happiness index turns out to be a bit more complicated than it looks at first glance. The official narrative is that Bhutan was an underdeveloped backwater until the 1960s, then, when its leaders swapped out economic indicators for well-being, it started to develop. But according to research by University of Ottawa professor Lachlan Monroe, this story is almost entirely invented. There's no evidence that Bhutan even mentioned happiness in any government documents before the 1990s. The country actually launched its well-being effort in the mid-2000s as part of a campaign to shore up domestic political support and to deflect global criticism from a years-long campaign of ethnic cleansing. The camps of eastern Nepal are now home to one in seven of the population of the tiny Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan. 100,000 people have been forced out or have fled their country in fear. I don't know what happened. Bhutan government started evicting people. It began, Mangala says, with a census, which the government claimed was to identify illegal immigrants. But when they began evicting Bhutanese citizens, there was strong and sometimes violent opposition. It was then the authorities unleashed a campaign of terror against the ethnic Nepalese. Comparing countries on their happiness scores means comparing them on their politics. If that's what we're doing, then we should include all of their politics, even the uncomfortable parts. Most international surveys on happiness find that immigrants, minorities, poor people, and queer people are less happy no matter where you find them. Many of the countries at the top of the well-being rankings, including Germany, the United States, and even Denmark, have worrying rates of depression and suicide. Given how easy it is for politicians to redefine happiness as whatever they want it to be, maybe it makes more sense to see it as a tool for public relations than a tool for development. After six decades of research, it's still not clear how to measure happiness, and even less clear how to change it. We know that happier people have lower rates of heart disease and longer life expectancies, but we also know that happiness operates more like a personality trait than a mood. It might tick up or down after you get married or lose your job, but it's remarkably stable across your lifespan. Trying to make unhappy people happy might be more like making short people tall. What I find always striking is that while we keep measuring it, we are kind of abandoning the very bases on which I would think that you know anyone's happiness would have to be founded, right? Like the absence of fear, the absence of you know one bad stroke of luck completely fucking up your life, right? Um, so the very baseline, which is, you know, there's a kind of contentment that comes from the fact that, like, you can fuck up a, a few things in your life. A couple of things in your life, as they do in every human life, can go badly, and it will not completely do you in, right? You can come back from it. You know, the fact that we're abandoning that at the same time, like, because that's all something that, that's something that kind of government has to guarantee. It's something that a society really has to want to be like, yeah, I mean, you know, so yeah, you... You crashed and burned a couple of times there in the middle, but, uh, you know, here's a pension. You know, uh, maybe maybe your third act will be the charm, you know? So what does all this mean for German happiness and American happiness and my own? The methodology section of the World Happiness Report 
points out that around 80% of the differences in happiness are between individuals, not between countries. There's happy Americans and unhappy Germans and every other combination you can think of. And sometimes, of course, the same people move from one country to another. I ask Ian whether he was happier living in Germany or America. So this is exactly, I think this is a great example of how this starts to break down. When I lived in Berlin, my life in the city and my existence in a more equal society and a kind of green, livable city felt good to me and less stressful in lots of ways. But for lots of other reasons, San Francisco was a better home for me and I was happier there doing exciting work, meeting new people, building a community. So I think that's a good example of how there's actually, whatever you might say about national outcomes versus individual experience is actually quite different. For weeks now, I've been asking almost everyone I meet to rate themselves on the 0 to 10 scale. Best possible life versus worst possible life, where do they put themselves? Most of them think it's a silly idea. Whatever they say now, they might feel differently in a day or an hour, and somebody else's idea of happiness is probably different from theirs. And then, after that, they say 7. I think, in general, I'm sort of skeptical about quantifying emotions into an index, uh, because they're so contextual. Both, both about individual psychology and about communities and local bonds and circles of care. So I'm a little skeptical that you could put a number on it for an entire country. But that's also my skepticism of those kind of indices in general, where you can say, well, this country is like 74.3 democracy. And, you know, they, where you can put sort of scale. I don't really think it works that way. I agree with Ian. Happiness is something we can recognize in ourselves and our friends and our memories. But there's no way to measure it, no way to compare it across people or countries that doesn't smuggle in our own personal ideas of what we want the world to look like. I do think happiness is a kind of individualistic concept, thinking of it politically. It's something that is speaking to an individual person and their ability to be happy in the world and to pursue what they want and do what they like. It's not really a really collective one. It's not something that talks about what we owe each other, the bonds we share. And so I think it might be in that, like for that reason, that it's actually not a very powerful political concept because it doesn't actually ask anything of us or each other or connect us in any way. You can talk about happiness, but there's actually really what we often mean is these component parts of it that are required for happiness to exist. And that's maybe prosperity. It's maybe a certain level of material equality. It's maybe freedom from war. It's maybe, you know, access to housing and have meaningful relationships in your life and maybe do meaningful work. You know, it's not, happiness sort of breaks down as soon as you start to think about it. Back in Hamburg, I asked Tim what advice he has for people who want to be happy wherever they are. I, with my patients, I have this little uh, image, this little meta metaphor, where your life uh, stands on one pillar, like work. You can get a lot out of work, and um, that's great. And then you have a bad day and you have no other pillars. So um, it's important, I, I think, to have like friends or hobbies. Or So if one of those things is terrible at the moment, you have a few other things mm. to keep you afloat, basically. So maybe the secret to happiness is just not pursuing it at all. Maybe it's an experience, or maybe it's a memory, or maybe it's just a park bench next to the water. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. 
This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the big pond that make this series possible. <laughs>